0: you are listening to this is oklahoma hosted by mike hearn telling stories of oklahomans and those that have made it their home
1: this podcast is presented by the oklahoma hall of fame telling oklahoma stories through its people since 1927 follow them online at oklahomahof.com and definitely on instagram at oklahomahof let's get into today's episode what's up guys welcome back to another episode of this is oklahoma mike here your host back with another episode talk to you a little bit about music today oklahoma music in in specific i can't even speak today (laughs) Uh, specifically oklahoma music but um brian correll is with me uh from the uco jazz lab and which is celebrating, what, 20 years? That's amazing to look back and think about it. But uh, we'll get to that. I want to talk about, um, you know, your music scene and how you get into it. But Brian, thanks so much for coming down today. Uh, Excited to learn about the Oklahoma music scene and and for our listeners to learn about it because it's still early, I think, in in kind of the city's history, I would say, in Oklahoma music. But, uh, I mean, going way back, just telling you now, so you grew up in Yukon, Yukon High School.
0: I did, yeah, I... um... I've been a lifelong Oklahoman, except for a few years that I was, uh, you know, out working as a professional musician out of state. And uh, UConn in those days, uh, I graduated high school in 1988. So in those days, UConn was still a smaller town, smaller community. And now as the metro has grown, it's sort of like everything is just one big city. It feels more and more that way. So, yeah.
1: so growing up then, music was always in the house, always around the family. Like what kind of gets you into music?
0: Um, so my father, Harold Goral, uh he was um, uh, a band director, and he actually went to Central State. Back in those days, it was Central State College. It's University of Central Oklahoma now. And he graduated in 1962 with a music education degree and uh, went out to be a band director, and as the case was back in those days, he uh, started in more rural areas uh, like O'Keen, and then eventually made his way back into the metro area. So when I was born in 1970, my dad was the band director at Yukon High School, and uh, he did that until 1973. and. Uh, Long story, I won't go into, but decided that that he was going to open a rental store to be an entrepreneur. From there, ended up being a home builder, uh, but music is certainly in his uh, in his veins. And so, from the youngest ages I can remember, uh, him playing the piano, having a trombone, a saxophone, a clarinet, a flute, instruments around the house. So, I feel really fortunate uh, that that environment was there from a young age. So, I was just always interested in playing. Piano yeah. was my first instrument. So.
1: So sat at the piano as a really young kid just kind of probably on dad's lap
0: well yeah and when i was uh, seven or eight you know he was showing me some things at the piano and i think i was always stubborn and so uh uh you know he had this huge stack of music and there was a um, a piece that really appealed to me my scott joplin called the entertainer which is sort of pre-jazz ragtime and and I really had no business trying to play something like that as young as I was. And my dad, uh, being you know educated in a traditional way, said, yeah, you need to wait on that. Well, that was sort of all it took for me to, well, I'm going to figure it out anyway. And so I, I think I spent maybe the better part of a year and a half or so tinkering around with it so I could play it, probably with bad fingerings and lots of other bad technique. But I think that was the first piece of music that made me interested in what eventually became sort of a lifelong love with jazz music in particular. But it started with uh, him saying, no, I shouldn't play that yet. And, you know, typical rebellious kid.
1: (laughs) So growing up in that, I mean, everyone looks back at music in that era, 70s, 80s. You know, it was so good, right?
0: I think so,
1: 60s, 70s, 80s, like all the stuff my dad listens to that (laughs) I somehow still listen to today and how it's evolved to now. Why jazz and not like rock and roll and... You know, because there was a lot, that was kind of big rock period, right?
0: Sure. I mean, and, and really in the 1970s, my my earliest memories of listening to uh, music, my sister who was eight years older than me had this huge collection of 45 records, you know. Some people don't even know what those are, but they're the, uh, the singles, you know, that have an A-side and a B-side. And she and her girlfriends, that was what you did in the 70s is you would go to the record store. And so I ended up playing all those records. And when I think back on it, you know, the rock music and the pop music of the seventies was very sophisticated and incredible harmonies. Uh, The musicians were really great musicians. I mean, you know, great guitar players, great keyboard players. So to that end, you know, in high school, I did my share of playing in in various uh, rock bands and and, uh, got to play lots of different kinds of music. I think the love for jazz specifically, I can really trace back to one person, and that's Wayne Kuhn. And Wayne Kuhn was uh, was our band director, one of our band directors when I was in, starting in middle school all the way through high school in Yukon. And uh, he had come to Yukon in 1980, and uh, he was a trumpet player that had played in big bands and was in a military band. And uh, he was a guy that, that, that truly loved this music, but he fostered... Um, sort of a a culture, and that really is the right word. He fostered a culture at UConn of all of us wanting to do something great, to be really great at something. Um, So every morning before school, uh, when we would go in the band room to put our instruments up and every day after school, when we walk in that band room, there would always be great music playing. So uh, all of us collectively were exposed to Count Basie and the Woody Herman Orchestra and uh, Stan Kenton Orchestra, so many different kinds of big band jazz because that was his uh, his love. And so he brought all of this to it. So if you showed up to a rehearsal and you couldn't play a part, and I'm talking when I was 14, 15 years old, you weren't so worried about him being disappointed in you as you were your friends that were sitting next to you. So he truly created a culture uh, of wanting to do something great, of being great at something. And that's something that's I've carried with me my whole life. And uh, but it all started right there with Wayne Kuhn. He passed away in twenty fifteen uh, or twenty sixteen, I think it was. We had a memorial for him at the jazz lab, but it was um, he was certainly an important person, yeah, for sure. Yeah.
1: That's kind of I mean that's probably one thing that people take for granted is, you know, they you know athletes, right? You spend time on a football or a baseball team or a soccer team or whatever it is and you get that camaraderie you know I just neglected to think about like you're a, you're there've a, got so many people out there in a in a jazz band, mm-hmm. regardless if you're a marching band or just a band or i mean there's you got that same camaraderie it's exactly the same you you're together you're practicing you know you're spending hours and hours trying to perfect your craft and like you just said you don't feel like you've let you you don't feel like you've let your coach down you feel like you've let your teammates down effectively
0: it's exactly the same it really is and and for for any young person um, whether they go on to a career in music or not being involved in that is such character building and so important for self esteem oh yeah um, and all of that you know and You know, I see uh, as a college teacher, I see, you know, continually see a new group of 17, 18, 19 year olds, you know, and they uh, seem to be getting younger and younger, (laughs) even though they're the same age. But um, we get to see really the best of young people because most of them have been fortunate to come through programs where they have a similar experience and, you know. That gives me a lot of hope. Yeah. yeah. So
1: going through high school, then you're in, the, you know, you're obviously very involved in the scene. Mm-hmm. In high school, do you think, I'm going to go to university, I'm going to play in a marching band or play in a band, and do you think I'm going to go to UCO because I've just spent so much time there, or do you think, like, oh, you marching band's amazing, I want to go there instead?
0: It's so interesting. So like most big schools, you know, marching band is a big part of it. Um, for me and my friends, my group of friends that were really into music, marching band was fun, but it was ancillary to what we were doing sure. um, in more uh, serious music you know, more artistic endeavors. So uh, it was never, marching band was fun, but it was never something that was important to me in that sense. And, uh, and by the time I was a junior and senior in high school, um, and this is something else I would just add is that Wayne Kuhn and other directors that have created these amazing cultures. One thing they share in common that I've learned is that uh, they're not willing, they're always willing, I should say, they're always willing to bring in other people and get help. Um, You know, the the, the directors who suffer are the ones that are worried that they'll look weak if they ask for help. The directors who have the best programs are the ones that are constantly inviting people in and say, hey, clinic my band. What can you tell my uh, bass player that I'm missing to make this better? And it goes on and on. And so because of that, um, he also helped me to meet so many people in the music community and one of those people was larry skinner and uh older listeners that have ever uh you know went and seen live music in oklahoma especially jazz they're going to remember the trumpet player larry skinner uh he was kind of a fixture in oklahoma well he was the uh jazz band director at Oklahoma City University, and so uh, I met him, and through meeting him, I met another gentleman named Joe Davis, who was an amazing saxophone player, really one of the very best, and he taught at Northeastern and Tahlequah. He was a huge influence, but because of that, my junior and senior year in high school, in addition to UConn, I was already playing in the, the jazz ensemble at Oklahoma City University. And, uh, and that was fantastic meeting all those people. So by the time it was ready to go to college, I was auditioning and looking at lots of different schools. Um, uh, one big one that I almost attended was Berklee School of Music in Boston and, and got a nice award that would have helped me to go to school there. Um, but uh, by the time I was a senior, I was seeing the culture at uh, Central State University, which while I was a student, became University of Central Oklahoma, and Dr. Kent Kidwell and Lee Rucker, who were my two primary mentors there, they had already built, by the mid-80s, um, an amazing jazz program that was recognized around the country, and some of my friends went there, and and as a result of going there, we already networking with the Oklahoma City music scene and actually getting to play. And I was, you know, reasonably smart enough at that point to see that if I went there, I might get similar opportunities. And so that's where I went for my undergraduate degree, was staying here in Oklahoma. And that's exactly what happened. Um, From the end of my first semester of my freshman year, I was able to support myself the entire time I was a student just playing music, which is pretty amazing. That's amazing. Uh, so, I mean, playing every kind of, of music you can imagine, imagine playing in all sorts of different worship bands on Sunday morning, but playing in bars on Saturday night till 2 a.m. and all different sorts of things. So I've, I've, uh, I'm very blessed in that sense that I had the opportunity to play with all sorts of diverse music, pop music and rock and country and jazz and blues and, and different things. So uh, it was the right move. And Oklahoma City is still that way. Uh, That all of our best students uh, find similar opportunities, particularly rhythm section players to uh, play every weekend. Um, and, or more, you know, three or four nights a week uh, in some cases. So uh, that's where I ended up going to school and it just kind of took off from there. And then somehow now it's 2022 and I'm sitting here talking to you about it. I'm not sure how that that happened, but it's been a really been a good deal.
1: Yeah. So in college and you realize that, hey, this is I can make money doing this. Like this is actually like I don't want to go do a business degree and get working nine to five. Like I can actually like make money doing this.
0: I think that, that from my parents, I got both sides of it, you know, the very practical side of, you've got to find a way to make a a secure living. And then also the side of follow your passion yeah, and believing that if you uh, truly love something and you work hard at it, the doors will open. And and I tell my students that now, you know, it's not an easy life. There's no guarantees that you're gonna go get any kind of music degree and find a a good paying job and have good health insurance and all those things that we all need. But, you know, if you're passionate about it and you're good at it you know, and you work hard enough, I do believe there's always opportunities and doors that continually open. The world is changing. Uh, the music scene continually changes. So being willing and able to adapt, I think those, those are, possibilities are still there. We have a lot of music majors that become educators that are actually music ed majors. But in Oklahoma, we have the only master's degree in jazz studies. We have the only bachelor of music and jazz performance. So we also have a, a good percentage of people that truly want to perform. Yeah. And, uh, and so it's it's been rewarding to watch uh, generations at this point of students and how they found their way. It's never a straight path. It's always you know turn left here and turn right there. But uh, the ones that are great at it, that have worked hard, they always find a path. So I yeah. can tell you you know literally dozens of different stories about how somebody started here and ended up over here, and uh, but they're still doing something in music that they love. So
1: right. It must be really cool, I mean, just for you, over the 20-year anniversary of, of obviously, you know, the jazz club, just to look at the alumni and where they are all over the world, right? Because of, like, what you just said, like, UCO has the only spot, right? You know, the jazz...
0: Well, there's other schools now that have uh,
1: different... But only one in Oklahoma,
0: right? But the only one in Oklahoma is a a true master's degree and an actual bachelor of music in jazz, which carries a little more weight academically, you know, versus a bachelor of arts degree or a minor, those kind of things. So... Uh, the Jazz Lab facility that you mentioned, that's 20 years old, the facility itself has helped attract a couple generations worth now of new people that really feel ownership of that facility. They see, and that's, it's a unique place, and so the, the students that are there at any given time, the alumni that we have come back, uh, I think we all collectively feel an ownership of that, and so it's sort of like a, a, a sun that so many things revolve around, and that's, that's been great to see.
1: Yeah, it must be so cool to see that, right, because... Been doing it for twenty years, and you know the jazz. Sorry, the jazz lab's been going for twenty years, and it's fun to actually see people come through and come back now, and like this is what it was like when I was here, and now and talk to the kids and. Explain well, they that. send.
0: They, I mean, the, the teachers are sending their students. You know, we had our twelfth yeah. uh, annual jazz camp last summer or last week. Excuse me, last week, and we had a record number of students participating. So many that we couldn't even hold the camp at the jazz lab, so we moved it all into the music building on campus. Um, but we had uh, former. Grad students, for example, in one case, uh, George Tamayan that teaches up in the Tulsa area at Metro Christian Academy, and he brought 12 uh, of his high school students, and he's hanging out and teaching at the camp. So we get all that sort of interaction, yeah. you know, with people that um, support what we do.
1: Yeah. Where does the kind of the teaching element come in for you? Because playing and teaching are two totally different dynamics.
0: For sure. When <laughs> It's funny, because when the Jazz Lab opened in 2002... Um, my first job there, you know, as a full-time person, was uh, building and running the commercial recording studio there, and also teaching some jazz studies. But in my mind, I saw it as as a part-time job, yeah. Because I was still working and playing music three, four nights a week, and uh, I had been doing that pretty much my entire adult life. And so I saw it as a supplement in some ways. And and don't get me wrong, I loved it, but it was just that. And then. About four years later, in 2006, is when uh, my mentor Kent Kidwell retired, and uh, and they converted my position from what was a staff position into a faculty position, and I became the division head for our Jazz Studies program, uh, working with Lee Rucker, and uh, and it was kind of it kind of hit me. It started to hit me. Well, maybe this is a little bit more than part time, uh, but then in 2009, Lee Rucker approached me and said that he wanted me to take over our top. Jazz ensemble, and that's when it hit me like a ton of bricks. I guess I'm a teacher first and a musician second, but I, I've always felt like they're equal, and I feel like that anybody that teaches music at a high level has to have performed music at a high level to understand what it takes. And to that end, you know, as far as our students, there we don't care if they are um, a music ed major or a performance major or a business major that's doing a minor in jazz studies or an accounting major that's not pursuing any music degree, if they're in uh, our ensembles, we have the same expectations of everybody. And so I think that's the most rewarding thing is is passing on that idea that if you learn how to perform music at a high level, you'll know how to teach it. and. It's absolutely true, yeah. and so that's. I think that's one of the differences. Some larger programs, if somebody's a music ed major, they don't have the same expectations of that person. Oh, you're only going to teach, and we just have never felt that way. And that goes back to a culture that was started by, um, just to mention some people that are important, um, a guy named Jack Sisson, Dr. Jack Sisson. Jack Sisson was the, uh, was the gentleman that really put music education at Central State University on the map. And uh, that carried on to Kent Kidwell this idea that excellence is everything and that you don't expect less from somebody uh, for any reason whatsoever. And so um, it's a place that's almost completely devoid of ego in a lot of ways. It's all about do the work. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and so I think that's what attracts uh, a lot of people to our community and what keeps me coming back over and over again
1: yeah yeah well it works both ways too right because like the kids who you're teaching have a lot more respect for you when they see you on stage because they're like oh he's still doing it he still gets it he's still playing to the same crowd the similar people that i am now playing to so Mm -hmm. and also you know like you then is equal isn't it because you 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 can relate to them a lot more than than if you weren't in that position Uh, and i think that's i mean that should be Something that every coach or every you know teacher or whatever should experience, right? Because you know there's mm-hmm. plenty of people in teaching jobs that don't seem to be in teaching jobs or have no experience in teaching jobs. But right. that, that's a different a could, whole different <laughs> subject. I don't want to go into that. <laughs> but it's, you know, uh, it is
0: funny that um, it's funny that I've had some amazing students over the years that, in many ways, I feel like have exceeded what I've done musically, and they're inspiring to me. Um, Uh, A guy named Jared Cathy comes to mind that was a saxophone student of mine for his undergrad and master's, and by the time he was a grad student, he was bringing me recordings and saying, check this out, and teaching me. I mean, so it ends up being a um, uh, very much sort of a community effort, you know, and he's showing me things, and now he's working on a a doctorate at University of Northern Colorado, and uh, then even my own son that I would mention, uh, Logan Goral, he is getting ready to turn 26 this summer, and he grew up around the Jazz Lab. He was five years old when the uh, the facility uh, opened up. And so he's lived and breathed this music his whole life. And uh, he's an amazing saxophone player. And I have more, I mean, I can't tell you how proud I am to hear him play, but there's times on the bandstand, like last Friday, uh, we played the final concert for the uh, the jazz camp. And he and I stood on stage together and he plays things that amaze me, you know. And so it's, uh, it's very rewarding, you know, to realize that we're all just on a journey in different levels you know
1: that's special to have that experience with a son right or with you know him for with his dad because i play golf right so i get to play golf with my dad which is one of the very few sports i think that you know we can do that but music is kind of similar to golf right you you can almost play forever oh I think so yeah it's and it's
0: always a new experience you know just like it always be a new course and the the conditions are different I mean every time you stand on the bandstand together and that's part of the beauty of what jazz music is is that every time you play it's something different yeah people ask me you know what the differences are between playing other styles of music versus jazz and really the answer is spontaneous composition improvisation um, how you play on any given night is uh, as dependent on who else is on the bandstand and what you know information they feed you in, either inspiring you or maybe not inspiring you but one thing is for sure you can play the same song ten times in a row and it's always going to be completely different yeah. and that's that's what uh, keeps you coming back and over and over again I think for the for jazz musicians is that it's always new. Uh, night after night, if you play, it's always something new. And so, yeah, so to stand on stage with my son and hear him play something that that, that I'd never heard him play before, and it's maybe because he's listening to a drummer that's inspired him in a certain way, uh, that's the art of the music. Yeah. It really is.
1: That's ah, so cool. Love that. Um, the other thing that, that kind of just looking through your bio, and it seems like that the saxophone is your baby, right? It seems like that that
0: is your thing. Yeah, I would put piano uh, a a very close second. I think I've achieved, in my lifetime, probably achieved a slightly higher level overall as a saxophone player, but the piano is right there. Uh, with me all the time. Yeah. You know, there's not a day that goes by that my hands aren't on a keyboard, even if I'm just teaching in my office. I'm playing with my students. And, uh, and interestingly, in those earlier days we were talking about in the 80s and 90s in particular, I probably overall made more money as a keyboard player that played saxophone than just as a saxophonist because everybody needs a keyboardist. Um, uh, like one case in point, that's one of the more uh, interesting gigs that I ever played. uh, The year before the Jazz Lab opened in 2001, um, I had the opportunity to start playing with Ty England. And Ty England, uh, I know some of your listeners will know that name because Ty England was Garth Brooks' roommate in college way back in the day at OSU. And when Garth Brooks got his start in music and throughout the earlier parts of his career, Ty England was his right hand guy. They co-wrote songs together, uh, so much of that. And Ty England himself in the mid to late 90s had some number one hits. Uh, There was a song that was number one on the billboard charts called Shoulda Asked or Faster very much in uh, sort of the Western swing tradition of Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys, but modernized. And so I found myself with the uh, the opportunity to play piano for his group. And I did that for uh, about two years and uh, went on some tours. Uh, at one point, uh, Garth Brooks gave him one of his old tour buses. And so, uh, and I say old, it was old, it was still very <laughs> nice. Uh, so I got the opportunity to be on the road and, and, uh, and, and uh, be in that bus and have those experiences. And I have a tremendous amount of respect for uh, traditional country music and bluegrass and Western swing because it all comes from the same source. Mm comes from American music and it's the blues and it's all interconnected. So I learned so much from that experience about how all different kinds of American music are interconnected. So I love all that stuff too.
1: That must have been so cool to do that, right? To like I said live that experience, go on tour, play around, play to different crowds, you know, different
0: cities and bigger crowds than you would play for as a jazz artist for sure. (laughs) And so that was it was a lot of fun for sure.
1: Yeah. One of the things that I mean you know, and the other thing, obviously, you showed up on a motorcycle today. That's another big love of yours, which mm-hmm. I kind of I want, I want to kind of intertwine is that what does music and jumping on a motorcycle do for you? Oh wow, like, that's a great question. Because like, because for me, looking from the outside, it seems like when someone plays a piano, plays a guitar on their own, they're just in their own head and they're free. Same feeling when they're on a motorcycle.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, I would say it's, it's interesting you bring that up. So. Um, there's two kinds of people that, that are on two wheels on the road these days, and I don't mean this derogatory towards anybody <laughs> whatsoever, but there are bikers and there are motorcyclists. And, uh, the bikers, it tends to be more of a social activity. Sometimes they're not quite as safe in the decisions that they make, and I'm all about personal choice, whether you wear a helmet or not, all of that. But I put myself in the category of being a motorcyclist. I'm almost over the top with safety. Um, uh, when I came walking in today, I'm wearing a uh, Dianese airbag jacket that is you know, sort of cutting edge technology, no guarantees, but um, people that don't ride will ask me. Why do you take that risk? And the answer is, well, it's a calculated risk, number one. I'm a very defensive driver, but the freedom, the sense of freedom of riding on a motorcycle, preferably when it's not 102 degrees out, but um, is like nothing else. I have some friends that have Bluetooth headsets in their helmets so they can take and receive phone calls and I just laugh at them because it's like the whole point is uh, to sort of escape. Um, When you're riding on a motorcycle, especially when you're riding safely, you don't think about anything else. Whatever other stresses exist in your life or the never-ending to-do list uh, that we all have, that all goes away in that moment and all that exists is you. and. The, the motorcycle and the road. And it's actually one of the most therapeutic things I've ever discovered. Um, uh, I had the opportunity uh, three or four times now, and I'm hoping again this summer, I'm not sure if it'll happen, but to go to Colorado Springs and ride to the top of Pikes Peak, for example, on two wheels, there's just no, nothing like that. So how it compares to music, um, not so much for me, music is much more of a community activity. I mean, I've played a lot of solo piano For example, um, different gigs, uh, you know, play at country club, you know, every week on Sundays, I did things like that for years, but I always prefer to play with others. But um, when you're doing that, nothing else exists. When you're actually trying to play a solo and you're in the moment, you cannot think about anything else. The highest levels of the music are being in the moment and listening and without sounding too... uh, Esoteric, you know, the music tells you what to do. And so you have to be able to clear your mind for that in the same way that you have to clear your mind to be able to ride safely. So I think that's sort of the parallel between music and motorcycle riding. Yeah. Yeah. Never yeah. been asked that question though. Oh, I like it.
1: Cause I'm not a musician. That's probably
0: why. <laughs> no, I think it's, a, I think your analogy to, um, to sports is fair too. I think that, um, uh, you know, that the being a part of a team, you know, and that the best athletes are the ones who are not just in it for themselves that are actually working with a team. I think all those analogies are very fair for sure. <laughs> you know, it's athletics and music in a typical high school program uh, are so Separated in many cases, and so many high schools are so big these days. But my dad tells stories of uh, sitting down every morning and drinking coffee with coach, you know, and the band director, and they shared way more in common than they didn't, you know. So yeah. it's it's interesting.
1: Yeah, talking about the uh, the Oklahoma music scene then, um, and when, like I said, when when you were given the job or asked for the to do the job at the Jazz Lab 20 years ago, and it was all kind of started, and and it kind of evolves, obviously, you know, into into wow, this is this is a full time. Job now. I'm not just like you said. You're you're a musician second, which me as a golfer must have been hard to swallow. Because like I I was <laughs> I've always been a golfer first, and now you know like well five
0: six years ago I wasn't. Right, um, I understand. But and and really and really with golf in particular, it's such a fascinating sport because. Mm-hmm. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me as, a, as somebody who's watched and, and putted around with some balls when I was growing up that the devil is in the details. Yeah. Every little small detail matters about how you swing, your stance, all of that, your ability to control not only your emotions, but your breathing and the stroke. I mean, I think there's a lot of uh, similarities, you know, in that kind of discipline uh, as there is in what we're talking about in music.
1: Yeah, I've never picked up, I mean, I think I picked up a guitar once when I was like 12 and thought, I'm going to be amazing. And then it literally (laughs) was like, what sound is that? put it right down. Uh, (laughs) But I did recently watch the new Top Gun and thought, I need to learn great balls of fire because miles teller did a great job <laughs> i can't sing to save my life either so i have to find someone to sing for me but the piano bit <laughs> seems quite hard to do great balls of fire on the piano he seemed to figure it out
0: it's uh, it's rewarding in one of the uh, so many life lessons but um i'll tell one story that relates to it um when i was in college at central state in the summer of 89 90 91 and 92 uh we i say we i was a student but uh Kent Kibwell and Lee Rucker and our other teachers hosted the Clark Terry Summer Jazz Camp. So Clark Terry is a name that some people will know and not, but Clark Terry was actually uh, one of the great jazz trumpet players of all time, certainly one of the very best of the 20th century and most influential. And he uh, was an incredibly charismatic uh, uh, musician too, but also a a great teacher. He was the first African-American ever on a regular network television program, when The Tonight Show very first started, and oh goodness, it was obviously before Johnny Carson, uh, one of your listeners will be able to chime in because I'm not remembering the name, but Clark Terry was the music director um, on that show, and and, you know, he was a pioneer in that sense, Uh, but his love for the music, he loved to teach and share also. Uh, One of the great geniuses, I said, he played with the Duke Ellington Orchestra, he was, um, just exceptional uh so at these camps uh for me as a young person to be around some of the the legends that were still alive in those days uh was transformational for me to say the least but um he had a student big band there was oh two to three hundred students that would participate they would come in from all over the country for this week-long camp so i was very fortunate to be in his in clark terry's student big band that rehearsed every afternoon during this camp and um We had come back from a lunch break, and we were supposed to rehearse at 1 o'clock. And Clark Terry was sitting over in the corner of Mitchell Hall, and he had his flugelhorn, and he had his back to us, and he was practicing something. And he was playing a very difficult, chromatic-sounding line. And he played the line and missed something. And, go, ah. and anyway, so one o'clock gets there and we all sit there quietly and he doesn't notice us and he practices for another five minutes. And he finally turns around and sees, us, oh, I'm so sorry. And he comes and he sits down in front of us and he puts the flugelhorn down. Of course we're watching every movie he makes and listening to every word because of his reputation. And he said, uh, he said, you'd better enjoy the process because you never arrive. And uh, that stuck with me. And of course, he's saying, you know, there is no point when you master anything in music. It's just this journey. Uh, you know, some days you win, some days the horn wins, and uh, and so that's that's part of it is enjoying the process. And uh, I think the appeal for playing the piano or any instrument is finding joy in the process. And. Uh, you know, so many people have had the experience of taking piano lessons and hating it and eventually quitting because maybe the kind of music they were playing they didn't love or maybe the teaching style of a particular teacher they didn't jive with. You know, I, I can picture in my mind the classic piano teacher in the 50s and 60s with a ruler slapping somebody's hands when they play wrong. No, you certainly don't want that. Um, and so finding joy in the process is how people really do stay with it, I think.
1: yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's totally the same parallel to golf as well, and Mm -hmm. I'm sure a lot of other sports, because, yeah, you're never going to be perfect, but Mm -hmm. spending hours and hours working on one little detail is going to pay off in the future, you know, and then you move to the next detail, and then you slowly build, but like I said, it's a lifelong, you know,
0: Patience, Journey perseverance, yeah, all of yeah, it, yeah. yeah, yeah,
1: which builds into amazing <laughs> life skills too. Not just uh, sure, yes. not just playing musical instruments, hitting golf balls. But back to then, then the Oklahoma music scene. Sure. What, what is um, when you start? You know, and, and, and like, what was? Tell me about kind of like that experience of hey, I want we want you to, to come into the jazz lab. This is the goal, and then kind of take me through like those twenty years up to now because I don't think people realize the scale of how important and how big the jazz lab is in Oklahoma music in, you know, and then the U S you know, country as well. But like, you know, this is, this is your, I, 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 don't, don't hold back on telling us about how awesome this place is. Cause people need to come out and see it. If, you know, there's a lot of live music and a lot of opportunities, you know, the city's growing and people want to some, some business owners might want to have live music on their patio or whatever. And, and then, Oh, sure. You know, there, that, that, that's just the, the product of it. But obviously this starts a long time ago.
0: Um, I think in order to, and I'll try not to be too long-winded, but in order to understand how the Jazz Lab came to be, it starts just for a brief moment by understanding the history of music in Oklahoma City in particular. Um, If you go all the way back to the teens and the 20s, um, this was a vibrant music scene here. I mean, Oklahoma City is always set in the crossroads of Uh, different areas of the country, you know, it's still personified by I-35 and I-40 and I-44 coming right through the center of the city, but um, one group is one example. There was a group that was called the Territory Band in those days, and they would travel around and play, and this was in the 1920s, uh, called Walter Page and the Blue Devils, and the core of Walter Page and the Blue Devils. Uh, They eventually moved to Kansas City because laws changed there, and there was opportunities for live music in the 30s, Uh, but that is the core of what became the Count Basie Orchestra. Those very musicians, uh, Lester Young, Walter Page, and others. And so there's a tradition of, of, of music in Oklahoma City that I think is a lot richer and a lot deeper than a lot of folks understand. So having just said that through the 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s into my time, um, generations of players have been a part of that tradition. And I'm just old enough uh, at this point to uh, have been around some of those musicians that were still alive in the 80s when I started becoming involved in music. And, uh, and so that's, that's part of the beauty of it. Dr. Kidwell, who was the founder of our modern jazz program at Central, at University of Central Oklahoma, his father was a saxophone and clarinet player that played in those very territory bands. So uh, Doc, uh, Dr. Kibwell, all of us that were um, a part of the program called him Doc. So Doc grew up learning how to play music in his father's band, his father's dance band, where you were playing by ear and where his dad would nudge him or slap him if he got on the wrong harmony on a given tune. So that's part of the practicality of what he brought to the program. Um, the next little tidbit is the reason the Jazz Lab exists is because of a man named Roger Webb. And Roger Webb uh, was the president of, of UCO. Let's see, he would have come in 1997, and I believe he was still with us. Uh, somebody will correct me on this too. I want to say till 2009 or 2010. No, it was past that, maybe 2011 uh, before he retired. Uh, but he, prior to coming to, to uh, UCO, he had been the uh, president at Northeastern State University in Tahlequah. And uh, the gentleman I mentioned one time earlier, Joe Davis, uh, was the saxophone guy and the jazz guy at Northeastern and became really good friends with Roger Webb, and Roger Webb loved uh, what he did uh, and what he did for his students. I think his love for him was seeing how he inspired his students, to be real honest. And he helped facilitate a, a facility in Tahlequah that's called the NSU. Uh, Jazz Lab. It still exists. Uh, it's in in on, on Main Street in downtown Tahlequah. It's a much smaller facility than ours, but it's a very very cool place. And we've had a lot of friends that have taught there and students that went to school there. Students that did their undergrad there and came for us for master's degree, uh, etc. But so when Roger Webb then came to uh, UCO and saw what Kent Kidwell and Lee Rucker had been building, you know, for the better part of 20 years, I think he, like, I want to do the same thing here. So the UCO Jazz Lab was sort of a, uh, a hybrid thing. So it was a project where it was partially the Edmond Economic Authority, so it's partially the city of Edmond, uh, partially from private donations, a gentleman named Mark Neighbors uh, that owned the land the building was on. He was instrumental in that part of it. And, uh, and then, of course, the university itself. So they worked on this starting in 1997 uh, from the initial idea until when we opened our doors in January of 2002. So uh, I was, that's when I came along and was actually hired full-time in January 2002 when they opened. And I remember walking into the building with Kent Kibwell and Lee Rucker and looking around, and Doc uh, looked at us and said, so what do we do now? I mean, it was an absolute open book uh, of what we're going to do. And Roger Webb, again, was the one that challenged us and said, you know, I want you guys to build a uh, nationally recognized jazz program. Uh, You know, at that time we had no academic degrees in jazz. Um, but we had this amazing facility, and so we started from scratch. And uh, you know, I was initially the guy that was charged with building and running uh, the commercial recording studio. And from the beginning, I was also teaching different aspects of jazz studies. But really, because of the inspiration of what what Doc, what Kent Kidwell had done, um, I started working on the academic degrees. So uh, the first thing I added was a minor in jazz studies lots of paperwork, lots of academic writing. And then in 2006, we added um, what is still Oklahoma's only Master of Music and Jazz Studies. And going through the uh, the process of adding a master's degree, it's like writing a doctoral dissertation, I'll say that. It was a lot of work and, and I totally feel like it was worth it, but it was uh, several years worth of work to, to get the approvals and get it implemented. And, uh, and that was all really inspired because of what those guys had built for us to make the Jazz Lab. Um, have the academic side of it and actually have those degrees. And then after that time, later on, we added our bachelor of music and jazz performance. Uh, So anyway, that's that part of it. From the very beginning, the Jazz Lab was a commercial entertainment venue, open to the public every week. Some of the cool things about the Jazz Lab that are still there now is that our friends right next door, Hideaway Pizza, they run their entire restaurant, um, an outlet of their restaurant and bar in the Jazz Lab any night their show. So we have a full bar. Uh, Patrons can order anything off of Hideaway's menu. So just picture pizza boxes constantly being walked in, um, appetizers, all that sort of stuff. So what's great about it is the public can come in, buy a ticket for a show, have a glass of wine, have some pizza, have some pasta. Uh, and watch a show. And uh, so that relationship with Hideaway is 20 years strong also and uh, still going. So the commercial entertainment venue from the beginning, uh, in addition to local talent and, of course, jazz music, but all sorts of different styles uh, of music, uh, I think a very fair reflection of the diverse diversity of the Oklahoma City music scene, we have those kinds of artists that perform. Um, and so it's just amazing how it's continued. One thing that we were so worried about is, are the crowds going to keep coming? Because when a place is new, you're going to get a crowd. We had so much good PR at the beginning um, of it, but 20 years later, the answer is people still show up. And uh, we, we continually have people that I'll talk to after a show that say... Uh, you know, this is our first time here. We can't believe that this facility, this place exists. And so uh, that's the rewarding part of it. Um, I'll mention one other uh, name, uh, David Hornbeek and a group called the Trace Amigos. That's his silly name he came up with for a group of him and two other guys that got into concert promotion. So the Trace Amigos with David Hornbeek as their lead have been promoting national acts at the Jazz Lab ever since, and, and we've had so many amazing artists. I mean, I wouldn't even try to list all the names because I'd leave out so many that I would, would, would regret, uh, but really a who's who, a Grammy award-winning artist, and, and some, so many amazing uh, kinds of music at the Jazz Lab. And so, uh, yeah, so we, uh, that started in 2002. The academic programs came online. Uh, the commercial recording studio that I was running was very successful in the early days because, well, the model for how music was recorded and produced hadn't changed at that point. Uh, since that time, we've watched everything in the music industry be turned upside down. People no longer buy CDs. They uh, hopefully, and I underline hopefully, at least pay for a subscription to a music streaming service. And so uh, even the concept of albums, uh, which we still do, uh, we still produce albums. Our graduate students in jazz studies, um, their final project for those that do music production is producing a commercially viable album. So we still believe in the album, and uh, we hope that people will always feel that way. Um, But it's changed. So we've changed with it. So the commercial recording studio is now 99% educational facility that our students train with. but um, everything else is, is very much the same in the sense that we still have live music and have great shows every week. Yeah. Um, last week on Thursday night, Edgar Cruz, who's been one of our mainstays for 20 years, did yet another show with a great crowd. And then Friday night was my band Uh, with some guests from the jazz camp that we held and and had a great crowd for that. And it's just rewarding that people will show up. Right. And it's not only jazz music, right? It's every different kind of style of music, Uh, rhythm and blues. Uh, We have different kinds of rock groups that play. There's some bluegrass that plays. Um, So really just looking at the calendar and seeing what's there, I think people can find something for everybody. Yeah. And
1: it's three, four nights a week?
0: Yeah, on average, it's at this point on average after COVID that, that, that hurt all of us sure. needless to say. But after we're still Thursday, Friday and Saturday, pretty regularly at the very least. Um, and then during the school year, there's all sorts of special shows. There's many times during the school year where there's something going on every single night of the week there that the public could come to, yeah. uh, whether it's a student performance or, uh, you know, a commercial uh commercial group there's always music happening
1: yeah that must be pretty special to to kind of been in you know and from start to finish and start to now seeing that evolution and the constant people come through and like i said there's still people coming here that that have never been there before i mean that's Mm -hmm. that speaks volumes does not it that you're still doing the right thing right not the same crowd keeps showing up
0: yes um one little story uh one of my favorite jazz pianists is a guy named kenny werner and so uh, in the early days, I promoted shows on my own too. Maybe lost some money sometimes, but uh, we had Kenny Werner to the Jazz Lab in 2004 or five. And he was talking to our students and he said, and this is a guy that's traveled the world for decades. And he said, You know, everywhere I go in this country, I get out out of the airplane and get in a car and I see the same thing. There's the Applebee's and the Chili's and the McDonald's. And he was basically saying, you know, so much of our country has become corporatized and it's starting to look like a mirror image. And there are a few places in the country that are still unique. And he, you know, said, you know, there is no other place I've ever seen in this country like the UCO Jazz Lab. You know, and that was a very special, very special comment, and I think that's one of the reasons that uh, that people come back is because you can't go in any other city and find a facility quite like this one. Yeah.
1: yeah. To outside of kind of obviously the Jazz Lab, there's there's a lot more music on patios now, and obviously you know venues that are popping up, Criterion, Jones Assembly. Yes, for sure. You know, like this is great for the for the just collective group, you know, fans of music. Mm-hmm. Um. You have a kind of favorite venue that you, you would like. If someone comes to the town, you're like, I'd rather just see them there or... Oh, other than obviously your home you
0: know yeah there's i mean and, and I, I think that's fantastic i would give a, a shout out to one of our uh, sister programs and that's the acm at uco mm-hmm. the academy of contemporary music which their home is down in breaktown and uh and and ironically uh the majority of the folks who teach there are people that are graduates of our program um you know uh chris hicks and mitch bell is just two examples come to mind uh really important names there that that have uh, have been a part of our community so we're, we're all part of the same community, but they have helped, uh, support, uh, the indie rock scene, lots of other uh, venues. Um, one of my favorite places, uh, that maybe not everybody has been to is called the 51st street speakeasy.
1: Okay.
0: That's on Western and 51st street. (laughs) That's the name. Uh, and they have all kinds of different music. Uh, but for the last, uh, couple of years now, on Wednesday night, they have a jazz jam session that's become immensely popular. Um, uh, my son Logan and his friend Kendrick McKinney, uh, that generation of guys that are in their mid-20s now, they kind of run that, and they're introducing the music to a whole new generation of people, and it's such a cool venue. Uh, so I really love that place. Um, interestingly enough, uh, one of the icons uh, as far as live music clubs in Oklahoma City is the Blue Note. And the Blue Note had been closed down for several months for renovations. They have just opened up and, uh, you know, they've supported sort of the indie rock thing for a long time. And now they're also doing a Sunday night jazz uh, thing that I just played at uh, a couple weeks ago, actually. And it's such a neat venue and it's part of Oklahoma City history, too. And I think you feel that Uh, the Criterion, uh, the other places you've mentioned are fantastic. You know, I I get the opportunity a couple times a year to play the saxophone with the Oklahoma City Philharmonic. And so just being in the Civic Center and playing in in such an amazing venue is that uh, people don't necessarily realize that the Civic Center's acoustics is one of the very best in the country. Uh, Just exceptional. And the people that run that venue uh, are all first-rate professionals. And so I love, love to be a part of that. But there's just so much. That's yeah. the uh, that's the great thing about it is there's opportunities to support music. And after COVID, when, when everything was shut down, I think there is a newfound uh, appreciation for what it means to go hear live music, because you can listen to music, but there's no substitute for hearing music played live. And uh, it's a social event, whether you're in a more, uh, I don't know, a more formal setting like sitting in the Civic Center for a concert or whether you're hanging out at the Blue Note, uh, you know, having something to drink, listening to some live music on a Sunday night. its uh, I think it's all the same and uh, just want people to get out and enjoy it for sure.
1: Yeah, definitely. Like for, for me, I think I, the first kind of show that I went to, post COVID if you will was like at the tower and we were sat at tables and I'd never been to a concert sat at tables and it was kind of it was a very odd experience but I mean it was ja- Jackie Benson came yes. and played and I was just sat there I was like I'm not I'm used to having because I saw her first time I saw her was when she opened for Gary Clark Jr. at Kane's a couple of years prior yes and there's was like, an iconic place yeah and mm-hmm. I was like she was like lighting it up and I think her story is I think she did go to that school in Boston and played like classical piano. And then one day picked up a guitar and was like, okay, I'm quitting. I'm going to go play blues guitar. And now she's a household name <laughs> in blues. Followed but, her passion. Yeah, yeah. So it was kind of fun to see her, but then obviously, you know, you get back and, and then Gary came and played at the Criterion a couple of, um, well, probably last year sometime. And seeing him again, it's like, well, you and
0: you know, mentioned you know, the Watson tower theater so and what another iconic place. Yeah. And to see how that venue has been reinvented for live music, um, I think people are hungry for anything that's uniquely part of our history, you know. And uh, and so the Tower Theater, you know, is so cool. You know what we've done in Bricktown, and there's so much live music happening in Bricktown. Uh, uh, Bourbon Street uh, Grill comes to mind. Uh, it's not Bourbon Street Grill. Bourbon Street something. Uh, I'm so sorry for not remembering the name, but they have live traditional New Orleans music every weekend and my friend Jeff Kidwell and others play down there frequently. And so, uh, yeah, you know, it's just, it's cool. What's happened, how Oklahoma city has literally transformed itself, you know, in the last 30 years or so and breakdown is for sure. Another crown jewel.
1: Yeah, with that. finishing up. Then, what are you excited about? Kind of, you know, you don't, you don't strike me as someone who wants to stop anytime soon, and you're obviously <laughs> going to be playing piano till till the clocks finish ticking. But you know, what what's kind of coming up? Maybe this year, and then I guess look for the future.
0: What what's the plan for going forward? Wow. Um, so you're catching me here at the first of July, and this is usually the one month of the year when I like take some deep breaths and exhale, and then start preparing for what we're doing in the next year. Uh, having said that, there's already a lot of uh, a lot of shows that are planned for the fall. Um, I got to think what what kind of big exciting things uh, we have. Uh, one of the crown jewels in, in Oklahoma City, as far as great musician and artist is my friend Vince Norman, uh, who's an exceptional pianist, composer, arranger, saxophone player. Vince had a career for 24 years with the U.S. Army. He was the uh, lead tenor saxophonist in the Army Jazz Ambassadors, but then later on became a staff composer and ranger and wrote for every kind of music imaginable, whether it was marching bands or or choirs or orchestras, all of it. And so Vince is back here living in Oklahoma City Metro, and he has a a group uh, called the Joe McCarthy Big Band that he's been a part of on the East Coast. And they're going to come here because uh, he's been involved with a friend that has written Uh, an entire jazz suite based on the Nutcracker, but taking all the music from Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker and putting it in a jazz setting. And so the weekend, uh, this is just one that's coming to mind, but the weekend after Thanksgiving... On that Friday and Saturday, we're going to be presenting that music to sort of kick off the Christmas season. So very much a modern jazz version of the Nutcracker Suite for two nights worth of performances. So that's awesome. that one, I mean, the trajectory for that is months away, but we're already thinking about it. And we're in the process right now of just booking other national acts and national jazz acts that will be a part of our season in the fall. I would also give a shout out to a group that I'm the music director of called the Oklahoma City Jazz Orchestra. And the roots of the Oklahoma City Jazz Orchestra really go back to the 70s and 80s, but the modern version uh, was started by my friends and colleagues um, back in uh, 2008 or nine, and uh, we survived COVID barely. Uh, our nonprofit aspect of the group uh, went away during that time. The, the group continues on, and so uh, the Oklahoma City Jazz Orchestra represents really a who's who of some of the great jazz musicians in Oklahoma, and we will have um, two Or three concerts in the fall and two or three concerts in the spring. And so I would would really uh, encourage people to look out for that as well, because it's such an exceptional group of musicians.
1: Yeah. Well, mate, it's been an absolute pleasure to get to sit and hear you. I mean, just share your love about music, jazz music, Oklahoma City music and, and just kind of. You know, take us through this journey I really appreciate it and oh, for, yeah. for people listening I'll link your uh, website in the description and also uh, go to ucojazzlab.com for anything that you want if coming up absolutely. at events absolutely there's nothing better than eating hideaway pizza while listening to great music no uh, so I, I
0: highly recommend the paradise pie <laughs>
1: <laughs> definitely I'm sure there's a lot of people listening who know exactly what you're talking about but yep. Brian thanks so much for coming down um, for people listening like I said I'll post the links to the UCO Jazz Lab and then Brian's website as well and if you have any questions um feel feel free to reach out uh, i think brian's email is on his page as a faculty member your email is is and contact information is on your uco nev- edu page so my
0: never ending to-do list is it, my inbox that's right exactly <laughs> and, <laughs> no uh, i'd love to talk to anybody
1: awesome so thanks so much for listening guys we'll catch you next episode cheers thanks this podcast is presented by the oklahoma hall of fame telling oklahoma stories through its people since 1927